I know what you were thinking. It was written all over your face. You were sitting there thinking, what I really want to see is another Current Affairs podcast. Well, you're in luck, because this is precisely that kind of podcast. Remember this. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts. Yep, we did edit the bit about organisations with acronyms for names, but you get the point. We think Michael Gove was wrong. And to prove it, this podcast puts the experts front and centre. We're not a parade of former politicians with axes to grind. Neither are we a bunch of party advisers seeking to dress partisan point scoring up as evidence. And we're certainly not journalists with gossip to share or stories to break. We're trying something quite different. Hello and welcome to The Expert Factor. Now, in a radical departure, this isn't a podcast hosted by two men. More importantly, the country is facing some massive political and policy challenges, and we have a general election approaching, which is going to provide an opportunity for our politicians to try to put forward their ideas for fixing those problems. Every week or so, the expert factor will bring together the directors of three of the country's leading think tanks. We'll take a step back from the news cycle and dive in a bit deeper. And in so doing, we're hoping to provide impartial expert insights and analysis to help you make sense of what's going on. So let's introduce ourselves. I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. And I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And this is The Expert Factor. But to kick off, a word about the organisations we run. So Hannah, what's the Institute for Government all about? What we focus on is the how of government rather than the what. We look at how government works, the people, the processes, the institutions, how they could work better. And we do that for whoever's in government uh, from a non-partisan perspective. And Paul, what's the Institute for Fiscal Studies? Never heard of it. Uh, Well, first of all, confusingly, we don't often think of ourselves as a think tank, though we do think occasionally. Um, We are more of a research institute and we work on what we call the economics of public policy. So the public finances, tax, welfare, education, all of those sorts of things. My colleagues, all of them, spend all of their time analysing enormous data sets. And we try to uh, put the information that we glean from that in an independent and clear way into the public domain to inform debates about public policy. And back to you, Anand. Give us the lowdown on UK in a changing Europe. A bit like the IFS, we're not a think tank. We're a network of academics and we work on everything from the state of the UK economy to Brexit, which is where we started off. But our USP, if you like, is the fact that we try and bring what the research says to the attention of people who might not otherwise hear about it or know about it. So we're popularisers of social science, if you like. And so from the UK in a changing Europe's point of view, Anand, what are the most pressing issues the UK is facing today? Looking at the sort of work we have been doing and are doing, I think obviously UK-EU relations, what might happen under Starmer is absolutely fundamental. But I think more broadly, a lot of our work over the next few months is going to be about public opinion, the election, explaining what elections are, how they work. So politics, broadly defined. And from your point of view, what are the most pressing issues the UK is facing today that we're going to cover in this podcast? I mean, a couple of things. I mean, obviously, the next 12 months is going to be taken up with the election. There's also the state of the economy, on which I'll obviously defer to Paul, but I think there are some very, very important decisions to be taken about tax and spend. And it's also important to watch whether our politicians can be honest about tax or spend. And the final thing I'd say, perhaps, is there's a world out there. And what happens in that world, whether it's elections in the US, elections in the EU, or the war in Ukraine, will impact us. I'd like us to touch on those things every now and again. 
I think we're certainly going to need to cover all of that. And from my point of view, I mean, the point, and I, it may be that I'm extra sensitised to it this week, but the big thing I think the IFG is thinking about ahead of the next election is the need for some policy consistency uh, in this country. Obviously, the Prime Minister made his changes to net zero policy this week, and there was a bit of an outcry from uh, industry and so on, saying, you know, where is the stable environment we need for making investment business decisions? And something that the IFG has always thought a lot about is the problem of the rapid turnover we have of both politicians but also civil servants in this country uh, and the way in which that undermines policy making. And so I think looking ahead to the next election, we're hoping whichever way it goes, we have a clear outcome so that we can get some policy stability going forward. In the end, it's the economy, stupid, um, is the big thing facing us and has been for a long time. We've had more than a decade of historically appalling um, growth and particularly uh, almost no growth in people's incomes. And that's being continued um, over this period. A combination of uh, that low growth with increasing interest rates at the moment or high interest rates at the moment is creating a huge problem for the next government, whoever wins in terms of the public finances. Debt is at a record uh, level, certainly over the last 60 or 70 years. Debt interest payments are the highest level for generations. And despite the fact that uh, tax has risen really very dramatically over this parliament, uh, the government at the moment is intending very, very tight spending uh, through the next parliament. And to avoid that, um, we're probably going to have to have yet more tax rises or some incredibly difficult decisions in terms of spending. Looking again to pick up something that Anand said, looking at what the party say in the run-up to the next election, how honest they're going to be about some of those really tough trade-offs that we're going to face, and whether they're going to be able to announce anything which makes us at all confident that they can get growth um, onto an upward trajectory, which will, again, uh, coming back to what Hannah was saying, really depend on actually some serious, long-term, stable policy-making, uh, which uh, will give business and others a chance to invest and grow. We've just seen Birmingham City Council go bust, effectively. Mm. Uh, biggest, um, I think the biggest council um, at that level in Europe, partly down to uh, lack of central finance, significantly down to other very specific problems that Birmingham's been facing. We've got that sort of problem. We've seen big problems in the prison system for a long time. The justice system's been starved of money. Not a lot of focus on those sorts of things. Lots of focus on the NHS, which actually had actually quite big increases in spending, but nevertheless nothing like enough to cope with the scale of demand that it's facing. So the challenges facing public services are really dramatic, and I think we will be talking about all of those over the coming weeks and months. So let's think about the substantive issue of the day for a moment. It's party conference season, warm white wine, rubbish sandwiches, late nights. Overheated conference centres. Absolutely. I don't know what to make a party conference. Sometimes I quite look forward to them, then I quickly regret it. But I end up being ill every October, whatever I try. <laughs> You're not I don't ill when you go, do. you will be by the time you come back. But behind the sort of uh, receptions and the fringe and all that, there are some more significant issues. Party conferences matter. So, Hannah, just to kick off with you, why do they matter? The ones we're seeing this year are particularly important. Uh, I mean, maybe we say that every year, but uh, I think these are possibly the last ones we'll have before the next general election. 
they are the first ones we're having after Labour have reshuffled their top team with a team that we currently expect to be the one that will take them into the next election. So it's our first opportunity to see uh, those members of the shadow cabinet set out their stall. It's also an important conference for the government. They're now looking at the last year of this parliament. They're thinking ahead to the King's speech, which will happen in November and will be their opportunity to to set out what legislation they want to get through in in the last year of this parliament. Um, And so we're going to start, hopefully, to see uh, the shape of uh, the teams, the shape of the policy programmes, which the parties are hoping will get voters to vote for them. I mean, there's a broader point, I think, about uh, party conferences, uh, which is they're big money-making opportunities. The Conservatives declare how much they make out of their party conference, and last year that was 6.2 million. Uh, So that's not an insubstantial contribution to the party coffers. And that, I think, is uh, interestingly one reason, one thing that will be factored into calculations about when the election is next year, because parties, everybody's talking about an October election, but uh, since the Second World War, we haven't had a a time when we've had campaigning for an election at the same time as uh, party conferences. It seems pretty unlikely that they'll want to forego the opportunity to make that money. Uh, So that's why, for my money, it's it's more likely that if there's an autumn election, it will be later in the autumn. So it's going to be a cold, dark, wet November election. Well, we got used to it last time, right? We proved that you can do a December election. Um, People did come out, they did vote. Um, So I don't think the fear is necessarily there around that anymore. I never knew that. I never knew that that was such a um, big reason for the party conferences and why an October election was unlikely. Well, we don't know how much Labour make because they... uh they declare their uh, finances, uh, you know, along in, in a sort of big batch with with other money that they make. But it we, is significant. We can be pretty certain that they're making more year on year because simply from going and looking at the number of business stalls there, uh, and the costs have gone up this year. I mean, they've uh, they've recognised, I think, that uh, they they c- can put the costs up, and the conference centre, I think, in Liverpool is probably a bit more expensive than some of the other venues they've used. So, uh-huh. as uh, organisation putting on fringe events, we've noticed those costs rise. I guess the thing that uh, you will be particularly looking for here is to the ex- to what extent are the par- two parties going to be setting out in particular an economic stall? And mm. I suppose we're particularly looking at what Rachel Reeves might say about the uh, Labour Party's economic agenda and what that's going to tell us about what they might be saying going into the next election. It's always hard to tell with the government. Um, one of the things that's very striking about Rishi Sunak when he was Chancellor is his speeches were staggeringly empty and dull. Um, and I think it's probably rather a good thing as we're running up into the autumn statement or the autumn budget at the time. Uh, and uh, rather than having the ministers or chancellors standing up announcing big policies to conference as opposed to doing it in the proper way, which I'm sure the Institute for Government would tell us what that proper way should be. But of course, we've had all sorts of hints, haven't we, recently, not just the Prime Minister talking about HS2 and talking about net zero stuff in the press uh, about inheritance tax, um, possible changes at the weekend. Is that the sort of thing that the government's going to announce um, at the conference? Is it going to bring any more rabbits out of hats? But I think for Labour, um, I presume we'll see Rachel Reeves again committing to fiscal discipline, uh, telling her colleagues as much as the and the rest of the country that Labour can be trusted with the public finances. But mm. returning to what we were saying just a moment ago, what I'm really going to be looking for is to what extent are either of them going to be spelling out just how tough keeping to those fiscal rules is going to be, what that might mean 
for public services or what it might mean for our taxes. It's interesting, isn't it, how we all sort of look at different things. For me, it's all about the fringe. I very rarely, if ever, go into the main hall at conference. And for me, going to conference is a way of figuring out what the shape and state of the parties is, what the relationship is with the members. One non-scientific indicator I always like to measure is who's getting the biggest queues at Tory fringe. I, can, I remember when Jacob Rees-Mogg was having them queuing around the block, I remember the sort of almost riots as Boris Johnson turned up talking about che- uh, chucking checkers. be interesting to see if there is a queue for Liz Truss this year. And similarly, actually, I never thought I'd use this phrase. I'm quite looking forward to SNP conference in the sense that, you know, the party's having a bit of a troubled time. It seems to not be pressing as hard as it has been in the past for a referendum. That has always in the past tended to annoy the membership. And whether that relationship between the membership and the political leaders is fractious is going to be very, very interesting. I mean, the thing I was thinking coming into the autumn season was I I was looking forward to seeing how uh, Rishi Sunak's five priorities and uh, Keir Starmer's uh, five missions that they both set out at the beginning of the year, how those are going to evolve. And I'm mm. thinking that the party conferences are going to be a platform for that. And I think we've already seen, as, as Paul was saying, the uh, first indications of that this week with uh, Rishi Sunak making this argument um, sort of rhetorically that he wants to think about sort of long-term policy, responsible government, having a debate, uh, you know, involving the public while simultaneously making announcements about net zero policy, not in parliament, so they couldn't be debated, uh, which some of which seem to be rather short-term. So there was a bit of a, a clash between what he, how he was presenting it and uh, what he was actually saying there. As you say, I think it's likely that we hopefully will see some more of the development away from just those five policy priorities into a bit more um, depth and breadth about what the Conservative platform is going to be ahead of the uh, next election. Is is that how the politicians see the conference? I mean, they see it as a a moment at which they can connect with the public, a time when the public will actually be listening to them, or is it a moment when they get a chance to talk to their own parties and their own colleagues to set that sense of direction. Of course, to some extent, of course, we've had big set-piece things in the Labour and Liberal Democrat conferences, at least in the past, in terms of making policy. And we just saw the Liberal Democrat have a... Democrats have a big row about housing policy, for example. We know that that's not a big issue for the Conservatives. But, I mean, for Labour, we've had, you know, over the decades that one's seen them, some really big votes that have really mattered to the party. I mean, I think... That's a, that's a really good distinction to make, Paul. And I think, generally speaking, it is an opportunity to speak to the party faithful. I mean, the people who who, who turn up are the you know the people who not only are members of political parties but also want to to go along to the uh, conference, and they're a really important constituency for any leader and any cabinet or, or shadow cabinet. I think um, just to go back to the point I was making about the timing of the election, the interesting other fact is that. Uh, spending on uh, party conferences doesn't fall under the limitations for campaign spending for elections. So it might be that uh, next year the parties see the conferences or the government sees the conference as quite a good launch pad for a uh, election campaign because they won't have to count that spending mm. uh, in what they then uh, spend on the election. And remember, those people who turn up are the the door knockers, the canvassers. They're the people. They're your foot soldiers when it comes to an election. And there's going to be an election very, very soon. So that makes it slightly more important than usual. I mean, on a good year, there can be nothing better than going to party conference as a front bencher because basically 
you're there with your tribe, the people who agree with you. You get to stand up and say, in government, we're doing A, B and C. You get cheered to the rafters. It must be far nicer than dealing with the general public and certainly than dealing with parliament <laughs> because all these people are on your side. But of course, the flip side is when a party's divided, and I think it'll be very interesting, the Tory party conference on this this year, those splits can become very, very apparent. Uh, so the Tory fringe this year, it'll be interesting to see what the themes of the economic panels are, because they will, I think, reflect the divisions between MPs. There'll be stuff about investment and building infrastructure. There'll be other stuff about tax cuts being the, the fundamental priority. So those divisions are, are, are laid bare for all to see in the fringe programme. If Nothing you, if you look. compare to last year's Conservative Party conference, where essentially the Liz Truss government <laughs> fell apart before our eyes with policy reversals. And I mean, that really was remarkable. And so... Um, I don't think it's going to be quite as exciting this year. What about Labour, though? I mean, um, you know, it's not that... 2019 is not that long ago. No. And I remember analysing the Labour Party manifesto then, which had huge spending commitments, um, nationalisations, very big tax uh, increases, um, certainly a programme which we felt didn't particularly add up, but more broadly, a dramatic change. I mean, a really dramatic change, a, a sort of generationally dramatic change in the direction of economic policy was proposed. Hmm. Doesn't look like the current Labour Party is anywhere near that. I mean, from what one can tell, they're, they're much more in what you might think of as the mainstream of economic thinking. So there's so much in the press about divides in the Conservative Party. What's happened to the Labour Party? Have, have, have all of those people who are supporting Corbyn just disappeared or are they just keeping quiet? There's lots of things. I think partly some of them have disappeared. The, the, the Labour Party have lost members since those days, so they're quite cagey about the actual numbers. I think quite often if the balance of the party seem to have swung, then those who are out of step of it actually don't bother turning up. Momentum and success in the polls is quite a powerful thing when it comes to party conference. And uh, Keir Starmer has managed to sort of drag his party in the direction he wants, including internally quite effectively. So I don't think you'll get much much in the way of signs of dissent at Labour conference. The other thing, of course, is in the, in the teeth of an economic crisis, Labour is currently fighting politics on the terrain it wants to fight politics on. Labour is relatively united when it comes to uh, economic policy, unlike the Conservatives. Is it? So, I think so, yeah. So it's economic policy at the moment, as far as one can tell, is to keep to the fiscal rules, from what one can tell, not a lot of additional money mm -hmm. available, according to Rachel Rees, for spending. But doesn't that make it very difficult? I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't the point, in a sense, of being a Labour politician to... Um, improve the public services and to, um, to, to to do things which actually require money. I suspect for the moment the argument that just let's play it safe so we can get elected is going to be enough. I think those arguments will certainly spill out into the open if and when we get a Labour government because there will be those MPs and members who want the government to go faster perhaps than Rachel Reid is willing to go. So for the moment I think they're relatively insulated. The party feels to me like one that is very focused on winning power. Is a danger with the pressure that politicians always feel at party conferences to announce stuff. Is that one of the things that creates the lack of consistency? I guess so, in in part. I mean, we are, uh, as, as the IFG, generally against rabbits being pulled out of hats for the sake of doing so. But I think if we can't have a, a set of sort of uh, new policy agendas ahead of a uh, general election, then sort of when can we? And this is the sort of really the firing starting gun ahead of those campaigns. So I think you're right. And we were very pleased to uh, hear the announcement from Rachel Reeves uh, this week that if Labour came into government, they would only have a single fiscal event, a single budget every year, something the IFS and the IFG 
with this oh, another acronym, the CIOT, have called for in the past, uh, Chartered Institute of Taxation, to say, you know, we really should only uh, have one budget a year because otherwise you're constantly having chancellors trying to uh, find new rabbits to pull out of hats and to tinker with the tax system. Uh, so we're pleased to hear that commitment from uh, Labour this week. But of course, the proof will be in the pudding if they get into power. Indeed, we've heard previous chancellors announce exactly the same thing. I think both Gordon Brown and Philip Hammond uh, announced the same thing and um, neither they nor the successors have been able to keep to it anywhere near. So there's what politicians say, there's what politicians do and there's the economic reality that confronts them and whether their words uh, match with that economic reality. There's an awful, awful lot for us to talk about and discuss in the weeks and months to come. But I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for listening. Do tell your friends about this podcast, subscribe and leave us glowing reviews. Sadly, there's no provision for you to phone in and vote for your favourite act. (laughs) You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Acast, wherever you get your podcast feeds. And you can find us all on Twitter or X. So do get in touch with any questions or topics you think that we should be looking at. We'd love to hear from you and we'll do our best to answer. We'll be back next week and we're going to be taking a closer look at Britain's place in the world, how we compare with other countries and how other countries see us. Until then, it's goodbye from me in a very two Ronnie's way. And me. And it's goodbye from them. See you next time. Bye.